Good morning. Great to see all of you here as well as welcome to all of you who are online. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, for those of you in here, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one from the seat rack in front of you. If you have one at home, uh, pull that out or your phone and look up third chapter in the Bible. It's what we're looking at. So we're in our fourth week of a series that we're calling Room of Marvels. I'll explain a little bit about why we call it the Room of Marvels, but it's really a series on foundational Bible doctrines, eight foundational Bible doctrines. So we're on our fourth week, but one was an introduction, so we have looked at the doctrine of God, we've looked at the doctrine of humanity, today we're looking at the doctrine of sin. Uh, you're going to be, uh, it's just a little quick preview of some of the things that we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at, we're going to be introduced to a personal, spiritual, evil being that exists in the universe. All right, so we're going we're gonna to be introduced to him. Uh, we're going to see that sin is more than breaking God's rules. In fact, I'm going to show you, uh, I hope you leave here understanding that if your reaction, if somebody says, what is sin to you? And you say, well, it's breaking God's rules, that you are actually playing into the game playing right into the game of that personal, spiritual, evil being. If you think of sin as primarily breaking God's rules, um, it actually is going to work against your understanding of what sin is about. And then finally, we're going to, or one of the other things we're going to look at is that we are uh, sinners because we sin. It's really important, it's a very important doctrine of Scripture that we sin because we're sinners. And some people don't like that. We'll address that a little bit uh, in this sermon. So before we jump in, we're going to pray as we always do for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our uh, reading of His Word and empower us in our lives to keep His Word. Uh, and then we'll, we'll listen to the Scripture being read by one of our five ochres. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, You are the Creator and the giver of every good thing. Thank you for providing us with exactly what we need in your son, Jesus. As we look to your word, we ask that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit. Tune our ears to hear your voice. Focus our eyes to see your truth. Soften our hearts to believe that we might listen and receive. Father, we pray that as the vaccines are going out, we pray for those who are organizing that and uh, the whole supply chain of that, Father, we pray for people in all those places. We pray that it would go well and that we would be able to get many vaccines out. We pray that the vaccine will be one that can get us back to normal. Pray for those who are sick with COVID right now, especially those who are hospitalized, um, for the healthcare workers who have borne the brunt of so much of this illness, day after day, week after week, month after month, we pray that you give them hope and strength uh, as they face each day, especially those who are working in with, with patients. We thank you, Father, that you are at work, and we pray that our hope would be in you. Help us to see that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's watch the scripture being read. Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We might eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All right, so every week we set up this series, a uh, good reminder, help people who are maybe new with us, but every week we set it up. And I think uh, that all of us can relate to a statement that I'm going to put up on the screen here in a moment. Now, I have changed the statement uh, in a subtle way. If you don't see it, that's fine, um, but uh, maybe you will see how the statement has been changed. But I think a lot of us can relate to this statement. When I'm in church, I'm listening to the preaching, I believe, and the world makes sense to me. But then I walk out the door, and it's like the world outside is weaving a spell telling me that this world is all there is. So on week one, we were talking about setting up this series. This, this kind of describes what happens to a couple of characters uh, in one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair. They are on their way, on their quest. They have to go through an underground realm. And when they're in that underground realm, a witch gets a hold of them and casts a spell on them making them believe that that world underground is the only world that is and the only world that ever was. They have memories, they have sense that there's more to life than this, but the witch keeps casting the spell and repeating over and over again, this is all that there is. Here's why it's so important for us to do what we're doing in this series. Our world... Um, we're using a different metaphor rather than being underground. We're talking about our world. It's like a fortress has been put over our world. And, um, and so every day in this fortress, every day, uh, we're immersed in powerfully told stories, captivating images, pervasive messages that indoctrinate us, literally seek to indoctrinate us into looking at our world apart from what God has revealed to us in Scripture. This is what's happening in the fortress. It's as if we're falling under a spell where God becomes, in our minds, increasingly irrelevant in our daily lives. Our beliefs become increasingly, in our minds, unbelievable. And we walk away from our faith in our minds and in our hearts and sometimes with our feet. And I say this part at the end here because I realize that every, every single week when I'm preaching, certainly this weekend it'll be true, whether you're watching it on demand or live or you're here in person, there are people that are going to be participating in our service, listening to this sermon, who have walked away from their faith and their minds and their hearts. Their feet just haven't joined in yet. And that's just a reality that we face. So this is a really important type of series. What if the world is wrong? What if this is not all that there is? So if the world is wrong, but we're falling under its spell, we need to be reminded of, and we need to deeply comprehend the foundational teachings of our faith. That's what we're walking away from. 
foundational teachings of our faith. And when we do, we will be captivated by their immense beauty, their immense goodness, and their immense truth. We need to capture, recapture the truth, not just the truth of what we believe, but its beauty and its, its goodness. The spell can be broken and the spell must be broken. All right. So in the series, we're asking you to use your imagination. So uh, the, the way that we're uh, approaching this is we're, we're um, asking you to think of yourself as living inside of this fortress. And within the fortress that tells you this is all there is, there's a room that you've not been able to go to until someone with a key has come and given you a key to get into that room. And once you're in that key, there are other keys to turn a certain lock, and it exposes you. We're calling it the room of marvels because it exposes you to the marvels of the world, the reality that is out there, the realities about God and about us and about the Holy Spirit, all those kinds of realities. So we're intersecting with a book that we've encouraged people to get, Emblems of the Infinite King, that, that is a systematic theology book for ages 10 and older and has beautiful images throughout it. And, and um, kind of carries this idea of the keys and turning uh, the keys. Uh, if you don't yet have the books, okay, you can go to YouTube and you can look up the videos that we're going to be showing you here today, and they've got the whole book being read and with an original score. Uh, you don't have the, the images, you don't have the scripture at the back, but uh, it's the next best thing. So let's hear the introduction uh, to uh, the serpent key. Uh, the beginning of chapter 3 of the book. Dream. No plant is out of place, no tree limb is too long, and no flower petal is missing. Everything you've ever wanted or needed seems to be within reach. For the first time, you feel perfectly content. You are calm and happy to be exactly where you are. You can't even think of anywhere you'd rather be. It's like being on a long, long journey and finally getting back home. That is until you hear that wise and familiar voice behind you say, The origins of sin. Your problem begins with a serpent. Your problem starts with a serpent. The serpent wanted the king's throne, but soon realized he wasn't powerful enough to bring the king down. The king was and is too perfect, too holy, too loving, and too happy within himself. Nothing could pull God off course. He would have his divine way, no matter how hard the snake tried. If the serpent found what he thought to be a loophole, a mistake in God's plan, you will soon learn that the perfect king makes no mistakes. That mistake, according to the serpent, was Adam and his beautiful wife Eve. The first couple was everything the serpent hated about the king. The king made them beautiful, innocent, and satisfied with the king and his blessings. He planted them in Eden, a lush garden, and then gave them the keys to his paradise. The king loved Adam and Eve. The High and Holy One would even step off His throne to serve, love, and draw near to His creation. Even more, the King designed Adam and Eve to reflect His image to the rest of the world. He made them to rule over His creation. He created them to find their utmost joy in worshiping, experiencing, 
and loving him above all things. The king had given Adam and Eve everything. He gave the first couple his world, and he gave them their purpose in his world. Everything was theirs with one condition. They must not eat from the death-giving tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This rule was not an empty threat or a cruel joke. It was a reminder. As strange as it may seem, this rule shows us that God is the world's greatest joy, not the gifts the king had so freely given. The fruit was good, but the creator and sustainer of the fruit was better. The king set this rule to align our lives with him so that we may know him rightly and enjoy his gifts in light of who he is. One thing is for sure, this condition, this moral requirement, this off-limits tree was the devil's way in. The tree was a way to demonstrate obedience and hope in the king, but the snake could ruin it all if he could make Adam do the opposite. The tree and its tempting fruit could drive a nail into Adam and Eve's relationship with their king. And with Adam gone, perhaps, just perhaps, the serpent could slither his way onto the king's throne. It was a long shot, but the serpent was willing to risk it. Adam and Eve were not exactly like their king, which might make them vulnerable enough to fall under the snake's dark enchantment. In an ironic twist that only a snake could love, the serpent commenced his terrorist plot. If the serpent could just get the first man to reject his creator as king, then the serpent could break the world from Eden to its edges. All right, what's essential to know about sin? We're going to pick up on that first point that the, that the book deals with. It's really important that we know the origin of sin and the nature of sin. So Genesis 3 is a temptation scene. It's very interestingly described in that chapter. It is packed, I mean really, really packed with all kinds of lessons for our lives. But here are a few of the lessons. We're going to cover three or four of those lessons. Uh, the first one is this. There is a rebellious spiritual being, he has minions as well, that opposes the king. Now, one of the things that when we do the story of God course, almost always, especially um, for people who are reading the story for the first time, actually for anybody who's reading the story and stopping and thinking about it, one of the things that people ask all the time is, in this perfect world, we have paradise. God has created it. He said it's all good. It's very good. And yet there is this, this serpent in there that is evil and is tempting Adam and Eve. Where did the serpent come from? And the reality is my, my simple answer is, well, we don't know. The Genesis 1 through 3 creates more questions than it answers, but it answers the questions that we should have. It speaks to the things that we absolutely need to know. Uh, there are other passages in Scripture that may be related to what happens somewhere in between in the heavens. Uh, there's a lot of debate about that, but all we know is in paradise there is a serpent, and he is tempting Adam and Eve. And he's real, and he comes back into the story again and again and again. Now, it's tempting for a lot of people, maybe for many of you, to think that the serpent is just symbolic, that the serpent is in some way a symbol of the evil in the world, or uh, like when Jesus casts out a demon, you see the behavior, you say, well, that's actually a mental illness, that's not 
uh, a demon. I mean, that, that is the temptation in our world. And there are a lot of things that I could say to that. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm just going to speak just for a moment to that temptation from a broad kind of 30,000-foot level. C.S. Lewis speaks to this, and he uh, labels that kind of thinking as chronological snobbery. And, and here's what he means by chronological snobbery. What, what, what might be at the base of that kind of thinking is um, something that thinks, for example, that we, in terms of knowledge, understanding, science, all those things, that we have, in some sense, arrived, and the ancients, well, they were, they were infants in their thinking. They weren't very smart. They didn't have all the information. They were very primitive in their thinking. Um, let's look at both of those sides of the equation. Okay, uh, if there is any time, but we will forget, and, we, and a lot of us have still not even learned it, but if there's anything that we should know coming out of this whole pandemic is that we have not arrived, <laughs> that science has not come to um, like this perfect type of knowledge. They are constantly, I'm not saying science isn't important, I'm just saying, I mean, that virus came, I mean, the, 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 the vaccine came out of science. So you, you look at that in wonder that something that normally takes years only took months to create. Uh, but there's so much they don't know. They don't know if, you know, if it'll continue working and they don't know how long it'll work. Uh, they don't know why sometimes the virus spreads and sometimes it, uh, it doesn't. They, they can't agree with themselves over time what keeps the virus from spreading and what doesn't. There is so much confusion in the world. But now multiply that to everything. Again, not being anti-science, just saying we have not arrived. There is so much we don't know. We have the idea that if God came now, he could talk. He had to talk to the ancients like they were dumb, but now he can talk to us. We get it. We don't. We really don't get it. We're, we're still, compared to God, we are still primitive in our thinking. But here's the other side of it. The ancients, we think they're primitive because we have this chronological snobbery and we rarely read anything that the ancients wrote. Now, we think that the Bible, you know, if we're Christians, we usually say, well, that's inspired by God and that's why it's so smart. The reality is that other people in that time wrote incredibly intelligent things. The primitives, you know, the, the ancients were not just primitive. They did not believe that every time they saw something that we would say, well, that's mental illness. They did not always believe it was a demon. And not even in the Bible is that always identified in that way. They understood that there were other ways that we can be broken and express that brokenness. Uh, even though they may not understand some of the things that we understand now, which we don't still understand very well uh, even, even now. Uh, so the ancients... Great wisdom, great thinking, uh, great ideas that we are still building on, ideas that we sometimes need to get back to because in our snobbery we've forgotten what the ancients oftentimes taught. So a lot of times that idea that this is all symbolic comes out of that, that kind of chronological snobbery. The other thing too is the reality is the spiritual world in the Bible is much more complex than any of us can even imagine. In fact, it's so complex that the, that the Bible only hints at its complexity and then leaves a lot in mystery. If you want to get a sense of just how complex it is, if you like the Bible Project videos, there's a whole series called Spiritual Beings. Uh, watch out. I'm not saying you should agree with everything where they go with some of this stuff, uh, but it is, uh, it is fascinating 
uh, while at the same time being very mysterious. It's not like we, you know, just by opening the Bible, we can understand everything that's happening in the heavens. It just hints at the complexity of what's happening in the heavens. It's a mistake to simplify things and to just say, well, it's just some kind of psychological something or other or symbolic of evil. Here's another lesson uh, to unpack from this temptation scene. At the heart of all temptations is doubting the goodness and the love of God. There are outside sources, like in this scene where the serpent as an outside source is speaking to Adam and Eve and, and getting them to doubt the goodness of God. Like, did he really say? And then if, yeah, okay, he said that. Yeah, you know, he's just trying to keep something good from you. That's what, that's what the tempter is doing. And that's what happens every time we give in to temptation is we have bought into the idea that God is not good, that he's holding something back from us. Okay, here's another lesson to unpack from this scene. At the heart of all sin is rebellion against the king's rule. Okay, here's where we get back to what I was saying, that if you see sin as primarily being breaking of God's rules, you're missing the point. <laughs> it is a cosmic treason. That's what sin is. It's cosmic treason. It's a rebellion against the king's rule. It's a distrust of the king, and it's a distortion an enthronement of the self and of desire. So last week we talked about the self and this, this idea that we have going through our culture that basically says, kind of bottom line, you need to be true to yourself. You need to look inside of yourself so that you can know what's true and what your life should be and what path you should take. And we saw that there's, there's a lot of problems with that a lot, a lot of problems with that. What it is at the base of it, you know, we talked about the practical problems, but at the base of it, it's an enthronement of the self. It's instead of looking at God and saying, God, who do you say that I am? Before I ever look inside and say, how have you made me unique and to make a contribution to my family and to my world? Yes, we do need to look inside of ourselves, but we begin by looking to God and asking Him and looking to Him to say, who am I? I don't enthrone myself. I enthrone God in His rightful place. Or the other thing that sin is, it's an enthronement of desire. It's saying the thing that I want that's going to make me happy is the thing that I'm going to pursue. It becomes my king. It becomes my God. Breaking rules... Looking at sin as being the breaking of God's rules is like, it's a thin explanation. It's a superficial explanation. It's true, but it's too simplistic. It's rebellion. It's distrust. It's worshiping pleasure. It's worshiping the created things above the creator. Sin is basically, at its core, trying to be our own gods. Dethroning God and putting ourselves in the place of God. Now, it is a brilliant strategy. If it's a strategy of his, it should have been a strategy of his. If it's not, it would be a brilliant strategy of the evil one to get us think, thinking that sin is basically just breaking some rules, even if they're God's rules. Because when we think that, what happens is, is we start thinking we're doing pretty well as long as we're keeping the rules. What was Jesus constantly pushing up against with the religious leaders? I mean, read the story. He's constantly pushing up against people who are reducing sin to just breaking some rules, and you can be right with God if you'll just keep the rules. It is so much more than that. If, if, if the evil one can get us to believe that, then what happens? We, the song said it earlier. 
God, I need your grace every day. Instead, we move on from grace. I need God's grace to make me right with God for the things I have done that's wrong. And now I just, you know, now I just need to be a good person. That's not Christianity. It's something else. Christianity is, I needed God's grace. I'm going to need God's grace today. And on the day of God's judgment, I'm going to need his grace that day as well. Because I've rebelled against the king. I continue to rebel against the king. I continue to commit cosmic treason. And he's received me and he's made me right, not because of my performance, but because I put my faith in what Jesus did on the cross for me. Here's another lesson. Our problem may have begun with the serpent, but now we also have to contend with the world and the flesh. So here's what Paul, this is one of the few, one of the few passages that kind of combines the world, the flesh, and the devil that we contend against. So uh, here's what he writes. He says, as for you, the recipients, believers, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay, the world... That's a description of the serpent, the devil, whatever is behind the serpent. That's what it's a description of. Comes up all throughout Scripture, but it's not just that. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul shows us how we still succumb to the flesh. That flesh is that part of it. It's not, it's not skin. It's not desire. Desire is good. The body is good. It's talking about a part of us that is set against God, is set against God. So we have the world, we have the flesh, we have the devil that we're contending against. What else do we need to know uh, about sin? We need to know about the stain, the stain of sin. So the author of Emblems uh, makes this statement. He says, Adam's sin messed up everything, not only for him, but for you too. Now, uh, Book of Romans in chapter 5 is one of the places where the Apostle Paul develops this whole idea. And he says this, sin entered the world through one man, it's referring to Adam. He, he refers specifically to this one man later in this passage. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin entered the world. And in this way, death came to all people because all sin. So it entered the world, but then we all sin as well. All right, so we're sinners because we sin, the last part of that. But we also sin because we're sinners. We're natural born sinners. Uh, here's how the Apostle Paul puts it again in Romans For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. Now, this is the doctrine of original sin. You're born into sin. You're born a sinner. A lot of people don't like that. That doesn't seem fair. To which the simplest answer to, to that, I mean, there's a lot that could be said, but the simplest answer is if you think it's unfair to be infected by Adam's sin from birth, do you feel the same way about being imputed with Christ's righteousness at your new birth? Because the reality is, I could have used, I wanted to use the word infected, but it's too negative. <laughs> All right. Um, 
But the scripture speaks of at our new birth in Christ, which happens through faith in what Christ did, uh, righteousness, the rightness of God is imputed into us. It's, a, it's given to us. It's counted in our favor. It's, I mean, there's all kinds of illustrations of it, but it's like I have a bank account and I'm in the negative and all of a sudden I am in the positive to never run out. That God, Christ's righteousness is now in my bank account and my, my sin has been transferred to him on the cross. If you have a problem with the first part, you should have a problem with the second part. And if you have a problem with the second part, uh, you know, we, join, you know we, we want you to be on a journey, but you are not a Christian <laughs> because that's at the base of Christianity, at the very base of Christianity, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us at our new birth. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. It's given to us. Um, so we're natural-born sinners. Uh, what else do we need to know about sin? We need to know about the results of sin. So sin's poison creeps into everything in God's creation. Uh, sin, for one thing, breaks the world. It just absolutely breaks the world. The entire creation is broken. Again, the Apostle Paul speaks of it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. It's talking about the renewal of everything when Christ returns. That's what it's talking about there. The creation itself is waiting for it. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the man who subjected it, in, uh, of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The Bible speaks of creation and then ends with the new creation. We have to understand that the Bible speaks of creation in earthy terms. You've heard me say this many times. Christianity, Judaism before Christianity, a very earthy, if I can use the word religion, it's a very earthy way of life. A lot of Christians want to take it in a very unearthly, they, they, they can't enjoy the fruit of the earth, they can't enjoy the fruit of community, they can't, they can't throw a party, they can't have any fun, they can't enjoy pleasure, it's like they, they remove themselves from everything. That is not the world that God created, that is not the world that He's renewing. It is a very earthy faith to be, it, to be enjoyed in the way that God called us to enjoy our, um, his creation. And so he is not going to create, when the new creation, it's not like we all go to heaven, no. I mean, it literally says that heaven comes down. A new heaven comes down, and then there is a new earth, and it all comes together on the earth. It is a very earthy way of life. So what sin brings, the Apostle Paul talks about it here, sin, sin brings decay to our entire world. But what God is bringing is regeneration. Regeneration. A new heaven and a new earth. What else? Um, sin breaks humanity. This poison seeps in and it breaks humanity. With the first sin, what comes in with the first sin? We see it in the story in, ch in chapter 3. Uh, sin brings fear. They hide from God. It brings hiding. It brings shame. It brings guilt. It brings all of these things. They enter the story. So look back at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up and we're going to be here for a while. So 
Keep your Bibles open there. But Genesis chapter 3, we're going to pick up where the reading left off in verse 8. Then the man and the woman and his wife, so we're uh, back in the garden. They have just eaten of the fruit they weren't supposed to eat from. They heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? All right, I read a little bit farther than I want wanted to there. We'll come back to that in a moment. But here's, here's what happens. They violate what God told them to do. They commit cosmic treason. They think that they are smarter than God. They don't trust God and His goodness. And what results is guilt, fear, hiding, shame. Now, we live in a culture where for about the last 30 years or so, uh, we have been told that shame uh, is like this terrible thing that we need to rid ourselves of. And there is a sense in which our world is right. Um, there is a sense in which our world is right. But you do not want to eliminate shame. <laughs> you don't want to eliminate guilt. Would you want to eliminate shame and guilt? Um, let's take, you know, would you want to, if somebody's committing genocide, would you want to eliminate shame and guilt? <laughs> uh, like, from the vocabulary of what they're doing? Would you want them not to feel any shame or guilt for what they're doing? I mean, it's so obvious. It's so obvious they feel kind of dumb actually saying it out loud. <laughs> there should be shame and guilt. The, the, the problem with shame and guilt is when we live in a shame that we no longer need to live in or in a guilt or we keep hiding uh, in, in our sin. God brings relief and he brings forgiveness for the guilt, and he brings a new family and a new, you know, when we're open, when we admit, when we no longer hide, when we're no longer in fear because of our sin, but we can admit that before God, we have sinned against him. Before our brothers and sisters, as what baptism is, I was dead, and now I am come to life in Christ because I've put my faith in Christ. That's, the, that's what's communicated through that. We don't have to live in shame and guilt, but shame and guilt have a very important role in our lives and continue to have a role. Now, Western society focuses on guilt. Non-Western societies focus on shame because they have a stronger sense of community, and both of those are important in our lives. Um, all right, again, let's go back to verse 11 and continue reading. And he said... Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman put here with me. The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now, what's the picture that's given there? The, the picture is, number one, it's your fault, God. It's the woman you put here. And number two, it gives the idea that she was over by the tree, she took the fruit, snuck some of it, came over to him and said, here, why don't you have a bite? But if you read earlier, it actually says she took it and he was there with her and then he ate from it as well. I mean, he's right, he's right there. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. 
and I ate. All right, so they're passing on the, the blame uh, to the next person. Altogether, there is this consequence um, uh, of every single sin. There's going to be, they sin, and there is going to be a consequence. We speak of it here at Five Oaks as a rippling out effect. There are sins that I committed years ago that are still having their effect. There are sins that other people, my sins come together, other people's sins come you know, and impact me and go out and start impacting a lot of other people, and it's a ripple that goes on and on forever and ever. Adam and Eve could never have predicted when they ate from that, that tree, they could never could have predicted the genocide, the abuse, the broken families, um, all the things that would come, the broken world that we lived in, they never could have predicted, but all of that came. God saw it all, but they could never have predicted, and they certainly couldn't have predicted what happened in their own family. So it gets very personal in chapter 4. So they have two sons, Cain and Abel. They each bring an offering to God from their work. And it says, beginning in verse Four, Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So Cain had brought from um, the first fruits of the soil. So he's a farmer. That's what he brought. It says the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but Cain on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, we don't know. You read this, and you read it, and you read it, and you read it, and you go, why didn't God accept Cain's offering but accepted Abel's? We just don't know what else. It's one of those times. I say it raises more questions. But we do know this. You read that, and you see Cain's anger, and you go, well, Cain, why don't you just ask? Why don't you just ask God? What, what is it? Or maybe he already knows. We don't know what God asked for. Maybe he already knows. But his face, he's angry. And his face was downcast. But it doesn't end there. Then the Lord said to Cain, give him a chance. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You can right this wrong. But if you do not do what is right, sin, listen to this description, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's a personification of sin. The Apostle Paul speaks of sin in the same way. It's like it's a power. It's not just an action. It is a power in our lives that wants to, is crouching there, waiting. It wants to have us. It wants to own us. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The sin of Adam and Eve ripple out. Who's responsible for this death? Cain, 100%. He's the one that took action. You know, it's not like, like anybody forced him to kill his brother. But who has contributed to it? Adam and Eve. And it's the same way in our world. Who is responsible for our own sins? We take responsibility for, our, responsibility for our own sins. Our kids, when they sin, they take responsibility for their own sins. But what's the reality? We, we have contributed to it. 
Back in the verse, I, I forgot to mention this, when we looked at Ephesians 2 and talked the world, the flesh, and the devil, one of the things I wanted to point out was when it talks about the world, that is the context of our mission field. The fact that we are contending with the world, in fact, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil does not mean that we are against the world. No, we are supposed to be in the world for the world. But it also has in there um, the flesh, and we need to take personal responsibility, and I just lost my train of thought, so uh, sorry about that. Um, how does it relate to this? Who knows? Let's move on. It wasn't in my notes back then. It's not in my mind right now. So uh, sin, uh, one more thing. Sin breaks our relationship with the king. Uh, we're going to be studying Romans before too long here this year. Um, we'll plant ourselves here, certainly for an entire week. But listen how Paul talks about what happened with sin. He says, For although they knew God, humanity knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Traded God for the things that God created. You know, this is speaking about like the making of idols, but it goes beyond the making of idols. It is a making an idol in our life of anything that God created. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So you have two, two kinds of judgment that come together here in this passage. So the Bible speaks of judgment in terms of God exacting judgment. A good example of that would be after the 10th plague, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go, but when they get up to the Red Sea, he changes his mind and he sets, sends his army to go and destroy the Israelites or bring them back. I can't remember which one it is. Neither one are good options. God parts the sea. The Israelites go through the sea. When they get to the other side, the, the Egyptian army is crossing and the waters come over them. That is God exacting judgment, bringing death and destruction because of sin. His hand directly bringing judgment. Now, you have to understand, when God brings a judgment directly with his hands right then and there, all he's doing is speeding up the inevitable. These are people far from God. These are people that are going away from God. These are people that are um, never going to turn to God. And God knows that. And he brings a judgment. He says, instead of you dying you know, from a ripe old age or from some disease later, I'm going to right now destroy you with these waves of water. That's what it is. It's a speeding up of the inevitable. But it's a direct hand of God. But there's another kind of judgment of God that you see in Scripture. It is much more frequent. It's rare, even in Scripture, for God to bring direct judgment. Okay, you did that, boom, you're done. You go, well, what about all the other people that did that? Well, in his wisdom, that's the person he chose to do that with. Almost all the time in Scripture, judgment is just letting us be our own gods. That's the judgment. Okay, his judgment is we get this world that we've created. That's our judgment. Here you have both of these coming together. He left us over to our desires, but it is by a hand of God, by an act of God of judgment that he says, I am making a judgment right now. I am going to let you have your own way, and you will live with the consequences of that. 
That's God's judgment. So sin breaks our relationship with the king. One more thing that we need to know about sin, we need to know the answer to sin, the answer to sin. And amazingly, it's already there in Genesis chapter 3. So, after Eve blames the serpent, God turns to the serpent. And uh, he says to the serpent, beginning in verse 14, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So you get the, the impression that a serpent had, arm, you know, had legs before this. Okay, that's the impression that it gives. And then it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You're going to be enemies, you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers. She's going to have children. You're going to have babies. People are going to hate snakes. It's all it's saying up to this point, right? And then it gets a little weird. It says he, an offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this has always been understood that this is something more than giving you why snakes crawl on their bellies instead of having legs. <laughs> this is a foreshadowing of exactly what's going to happen. He, one of the descendants of Eve, is going to crush the evil one. But when he does so, he's going to do it by suffering great, great loss. The snake will bite his heel. Let's listen to the last part of Emblems, chapter 3. The answer to sin. The king turns your darkness into light. This serpent key unlocks a dark, dark truth about yourself, about your world, and about everyone else. That the king, motivated by his huge love, can turn your darkness into light. For it is against this darkness that his beauty shines in full brilliance. Sin is not the end of your story or at least it doesn't have to be. While the serpent, sin, and shame shout their demands, God graciously writes a better story by writing his word into his world. And with overwhelming mercy, the king turns your curses and punishments into the true hope that actually heals you. You read that right. The king uses the dreadful curses you earned to give you his perfect promises you don't deserve. He turns sin's power into sin's defeat. While punishing sin in Genesis 3, the king hints at his grace. He promises to send a child, one of Adam and Eve's great, 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 etc. grandchildren, into his world to unbreak his world. This son will make everything right again by killing the serpent. By being crushed by spiritual and physical death himself, this promised one will crush the head of the serpent, destroy sin, and conquer death once and for all. To draw out sin's poison, the king sends his son to drink the poison so you don't have to. 
turn the next key and watch what the king does. The king sends sends his son to drink the poison so that you don't have to. On the night it was betrayed, uh, Jesus took the bread of the Passover and he said, this is my body broken for you, meaning in your place. He's He's about to experience the striking of the serpent. And he took the cup of Passover and he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. This is for the remission of your sins. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you for the glory, the goodness, and the beauty of your story. A story where you help us to see the reality of who we are and what we are. And then you, you tell us that you have not abandoned us, but that you are willing to take the punishment that we deserve for the great effects of our sins. We fall under temptation, we sin, we sin against you, we commit cosmic treason, we distrust you, and you bring grace. So, Father, we need your grace today. We will need it tomorrow. Help us not to forget that. Help us to lean into you. In our fight with the flesh, help us to go into our world as as your missionaries, living in the humility of our failures, but confident in the strength of your forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.